If you're anything like me, you spent your childhood assuming that one day you'd meet your Prince Charming. You'd get married, you'd have a nice house in the suburbs, a dog, a career, and a couple of kids. It never crossed your mind that Prince Charming wouldn't come along, or that tragically you'd lose him before his time, or that your marriage wouldn't work out, or even that your biological clock would have other ideas. Or maybe you never really wanted that sort of happily ever after. Maybe you never wanted a man, but you did know you always wanted children. We're living in an age where for the first time, women can embrace motherhood on their own terms. They no longer have to put their lives on hold waiting for the right man, or settling for someone who they know isn't right for them, just so they can become a mother. More women than ever before are embarking on the journey to become what's known as a solo mother by choice. And while for a lot of us it doesn't feel like a choice, but more a necessity, the bottom line is there are now options for you to be able to fulfill your dreams of motherhood if the traditional route isn't playing out as expected. The No Need for Prince Charming podcast will share stories of Australian women who have successfully become solo mothers by choice. They each have a unique story as to why they decided to pursue motherhood in this way and the journey they had to go through to make this dream a reality. The hope is that by sharing these stories, you'll have the knowledge and the confidence to embark on this amazing journey yourself if you determine it's the right one for you. In the words of Walt Disney, all of our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. All you need is faith, trust, and a little bit of pixie dust. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Jess. Jess is from Western Australia and ended up using a known donor to create her little family with her daughter Gwen and son Freddie. Welcome to the podcast today, Jess. I would love to start by understanding what led you to make the decision to become a solo mum by choice. Okay. Uh, I always knew I wanted children. Mm-hmm. For me, I, you know, ever since I was young girl, I just knew that I wanted to have children. Uh, so from my 20s, really, I started to verbalise, especially to good friends, um, that I would do it alone if I didn't meet someone. Yeah. And I think, like, reflecting back, that that was very theoretical at that stage, you know, even <laughs> though I used to say that all the time. Um, I, I never really thought about what that would actually mean in terms of the practical steps. Um, I just knew that especially in my early 20s, I didn't have any long-term relationships. Uh, And for me, it just felt like important to have that idea that having children wasn't dependent on that. Mm. Um, And I didn't know any other solo moms. I did have some friends, uh, gay friends, who had used donor to have a family. So it was kind of real in that sense, but... um, and then I guess later I heard of one or two through other people, solo mums who had done it themselves. Um, I was in the UK for a lot of my 20s and 30s and, um, you know, I think it's a little bit easier there in terms of wait times and things like that. So I just always had it in my head of that's what I would do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I just have always found it hard to imagine my life without children. Um. Yeah, so I guess for me it wasn't a hard decision. I decided to move back from the UK to Australia when I was 36 mm-hmm. uh, and decided that I'd give myself a year and then I would start the process of becoming mum with a donor um, if I didn't meet someone. Realistically, I never even tried to date once I got oh, yeah. to Perth because, <laughs> I don't know, it just felt like I guess I started to feel that 
I was looking at a romantic relationship purely through the lens of having a family and that wasn't how I wanted to approach that. <laughs> I think pretty much every female in their yeah, mid to late 30s is the same. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, yeah, and I guess having had um, a relationship that didn't work out, I, I just did not want to be with the wrong person and try and have a family that way and I didn't want the pressure of that so I yeah decided to do it on my own (laughs) wow was there a light bulb moment or you think just moving back was starting the process of progressing to that I wouldn't say there was a light bulb moment for me I think it was that moment of actually starting the practical steps that would make it happen in my head I'd always had 36 as the deadline for that (laughs) and then I sort of extended it so I I started trying um, when I was 37, just after I turned 37. And what did you do when you started trying? Did you go through a clinic or did you do it at home? Or No, so I always thought I would go through a clinic. I'd always envisioned that if I used a donor, it would be through a clinic. Mm-hmm. When I moved back to Australia, because I had for a long time verbalised my desire to do that if I didn't find a partner, um, I had some friends who knew that was my intention and one of them was one of my oldest friends my bestie from university and she said to me oh you know uh, my brother would be interested in potentially being a donor and as soon as she said that I thought oh gosh I had never considered anyone in my friendship circle uh, in that light ever but um, you know her brother feel I'd known since I was 18 when I met her Uh, so a long time by that point Um, both in Australia and he was in London for a few years the same time as me and so once she said that and said oh maybe you know you could give him a call Uh, and so I did and we had a chat about it and from the first phone call it just felt like that was the right path oh interesting Uh, yeah which I just never would have imagined myself in that scenario, but, um, you know, both from a head and a heart perspective, it just, you know, felt like the right thing for me. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, so I called him. We had a chat. Uh, He lived on the other side of the country, so it was a bit of a logistical challenge. But also, also, I guess, in the long run, probably helped a lot as well because it was that geographical separation. Uh, to kind of keep the boundaries, I guess. Um, So, yeah, so we had a chat. Um, He also had a chat with his husband uh, to make sure he was comfortable with it as well, which he was, thankfully, Uh, and we decided to start trying. So I had just got a new job in Australia, so I said, well, let's wait a few months so that I, you know, settle in there. Um, And then we got legal advice. Mm-hmm. went through a process over about a month of talking through the agreement. The lawyer I used was fantastic, had a lot of experience in this sector. They were someone who did specialise in that area? Mm-hmm. Yep, so specialised um, family lawyer with lots of experience in this kind of thing. So she gave us a great template and Phil and I went through that. It brought up lots of stuff that neither of us had thought about. Which what was the thing for the big ones, do you think? Some of the things I hadn't thought about, I mean, all the stuff which I guess 
would say the admin stuff, like, you know, that I get to name the child, that I have full financial responsibility, all decisions, medical, educational, like, are all mine, um, you know, all of that kind of stuff was fairly standard. But it, I guess more of the social aspect stuff that I hadn't thought about, like what kind of access do we envision for grandparents? Um being gay, he had a number of friends who had donated in varying circumstances, some to no known sort of friends, um, and he had, I guess, some of their experiences to draw on. Yeah. So we also talked about what kind of contact we envisioned, what kind of role he would play, um, and for us that was kind of the, you know, the doting uncle type of role that he would um you know, was, and things like it was important to both of us that there was always honesty. So any children that resulted would know uh, that he had supplied the sperm mm-hmm. um, and, and how they were created and that we did envision a relationship um, for him with the children. Um, I'm trying to think what else was in there. I guess living on the other side of the, the country, at least that makes it a little bit easier to not have yeah. such lines if it's in the, the child's life a lot. So Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. Um, and I guess one of the things we talked about was our biggest fears about the process. And I didn't really have any massive fears. Um, but for him, he had one which I had not thought about, which was his biggest fear was that one day I would meet someone who – and partner with them who did not want him involved in the children's lives, Um, which I hadn't thought about really. But I guess, you know, from his perspective, if I did meet someone who I then ended up in a relationship with, living with, you know, potentially being sort of date, fulfilling a day-to-day parent role for the children, child or children, um, that they might not, yeah, that they might want to exclude him. So I guess knowing that that was a fear um, helped us as well when we're drafting the agreement, setting out that, you know, we did think a relationship was important and what level of contact. I guess um, it's one of those things now you know that if you do get involved with someone, you'll be very conscious that that's that's the case from the beginning. So yeah, if exactly. anyone who wasn't okay with that, you probably wouldn't get involved with them anyway because they're probably not the right sort of person for you. Well, that was my thought as well. <laughs> that was my thought as well. So, But I can understand where his thinking came from. Um, yeah so that type of thing so we did that we signed the agreement um, it was a bit of a hilarious moment because we needed someone to witness it so my mum's 70 year old bestie was our witness and then we all went out for pizza <laughs> and um, joked about sperm and different things and um, then we went home and had our first attempt that night so we did start trying to conceive with at-home insemination. Mm-hmm. So we did some initial testing through our GPs and there were no red flags. I had no history of um, fertility issues in my family. I've got an identical twin sister who conceived very easily. And while that's probably not medically um, a good reason, I I just thought, oh, well, you know, it might not be, you know, hopefully that will be smooth. Um, so we started that. And um, the second month of that, um, I got pregnant. Oh, wow. Which was amazing. Um, Unfortunately, I miscarried that pregnancy at eight weeks um, and then got a DVT. 
which was a pain in the bum because <laughs> it meant the medication for that meant we had to stop trying for three or four months. Mm. Um, after that, started trying again. Um, so I bore the full financial cost. So every month I would fly Phil over. Um, he would work from Perth um, and we would um, right. have a try. So then I think we had maybe three or four months of trying after that DVT and miscarriage um, that didn't work. And I started to think, okay, it might be time to see a clinic. Uh, and just practically as well, I need the sperm to be in Perth. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I got a referral, went to a clinic, um, went and saw the fertility specialist. Uh, he was very much like, well, most people I see have never got pregnant. The fact that you've had a miscarriage, you probably just haven't been trying long enough. Um Whereas I was like, what? What do you mean? Can't we do IVF next month? Um, But uh, what we did then was a tracked ovulation cycle. So I did the blood test through the clinic, made sure we were getting the timing right, did another at-home insemination um, based on that information and got pregnant again. Unfortunately, miscarried again at the same uh, time frame, so eight weeks in. Uh, But that, that one was monitored by the clinic. So then I went back to the fertility specialist and uh, we decided to try an IUI. So then Phil left the um, samples with the clinic and then I kind of carried on myself without him needing to come over all the time. Did they have to do any testing or anything specific with the sperm or they just took it and then had it ready for when you did the IUI? Um, They did do their standard testing. So... um, what do they test for? I think, oh, I can't even remember now, so many years ago. Um, but they do test it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we had to both had to do, um, even though we had the stuff from, I guess it would have been maybe eight or nine months ago prior to that point from our GPs, they redid the bloods and stuff around um, sexually transmitted diseases and whatever else they do as standard. Yeah. Um. Then I did the first IUI with the clinic, which was successful and resulted in a successful pregnancy, third time lucky, Uh, and that was my daughter who is now just over three years old. You make it sound like maybe there's another one. Yes, I have two. I have two children. Um, So always wanted multiple children. Um, I think the first 12 months with my daughter, she was um, quite a challenging baby. Oh. Uh, there was a lot of shouting at me. Um, she cried and cried and cried a lot. She had colic. Uh, she was refluxy. Um, and I thought, oh, God, I can't, I couldn't have another one. Um, but I guess at the 12-month mark, things felt a lot easier then. I thought, oh, no, I think maybe I could <laughs> um, and decided I would try again. Um, I guess for me that like emotionally that was kind of hard. Like it wasn't a hard decision for me, but while I had had amazing support and encouragement from my family and the friends that I chose to tell when I was trying to have my first child, it was, you know, they're amazing. Um, A lot of people didn't really support my decision to try for a second child. Oh, really? Yeah, which I guess hurt. It did hurt. Um. And I think mostly it came from a place of love. You know, they were worried. I had found it hard when my little girl was a baby. Um, 
and you know things were finally like a bit easier but I just knew and I think my parents were worried that they were getting older and you know would they be able to support me in the way they wanted to Uh, but I just knew I would regret it if I didn't try so I did set you know quite strict parameters for myself in my mind about how long I try for and what um you know, what I would be willing to spend. Um, I guess having been lucky enough to have Gwen with IUI, I wasn't in the position of having embryos ready Mm -hmm. to go, which meant, you know, starting trying at age 40 for a second child, I was conscious that it might, you know, that could well be a barrier. It's hard to overcome. So I did start trying, um, Still had sperm at the fertility clinic, so went back. Oh, that's handy. You didn't have to fly him back over. Yeah, that's right. Um, So still had – so I did two IUIs through the fertility clinic, both of which didn't work. Um, For me, the IUIs, the the one I had with Gwen and then the two I tried for my second child were um, unmedicated, so just had the one um, ovidural trigger. Otherwise, um, no medication. But just monitored so, up until that point to make sure yeah, there was going to be something. Like that's right. Um, and then so after those two failed ones trying for number two, I did go back to the fertility specialist and speak to him about options and we decided to try um, a medicated IUI. Mm-hmm. So in my head I had said I would do five IUIs and if they didn't work, it wasn't meant to be. Okay. Um, after the two failed IUIs, I did start looking into the costs of IU, um, IVF through the clinic and thinking about, you know, would I give that one go? Um, but then after the two didn't work, I took a trip over to the East Coast to visit my family in Canberra and then went up to Queensland um, to see some friends, including Phil. Mm-hmm. And it um, time, I timed that with when I thought I'd ovulate. So we had another at-home insemination try while I was in Queensland and then I got pregnant so at 40 (laughs) um which was amazing uh and that pregnancy resulted in my son Freddie who is 10 months old now oh wow so for anyone listening that's looking at maybe having a donor and doing um home insemination can you explain a little bit about what you went through to do that (laughs) yeah yeah. I went through a clinic and did IVF so I actually idea I know. I know other than the um jokes we all know about turkey basting I didn't yeah. either I was like oh um it was actually Phil who suggested like I guess once we had the discussions about the agreement um I just always imagined we would go to a clinic and get mm. them to you know manage it all um I guess because of his experience having friends donating to um lesbian couples or um, various scenarios he said oh you know oh we I thought, you know, what do you think about just trying ourselves first? Um, and I said, like, oh, okay. So then I started to research. Um, I found it a little hard to find information, to be honest, online. Mm. Um, I did find this, in retrospect, very odd. Um, so this thing you could purchase from the US, like this device that would help you do at-home insemination and um it was like a hundred and something dollars. And I thought, oh God, you know, is that what you need? Like that's going to be yeah. expensive every time. Um, and then found some other information, I think from a Victorian group or website um, that was basically like go to the pharmacy, buy a specimen cup and a syringe. You're good to go. That's it. 
Yes. <laughs> so I did. Um, yeah. I did also, based on my research, decide to use a um, menstrual cup afterwards. All right. Yeah. So um, I guess to try and keep the sperm in place. I don't know. I don't think that made any difference, but I did use it. Um, I think some of it's psychological. Like when you do an IUI, you end up like putting your legs up the wall yeah. or something. I'm yeah. helping gravity. I don't know. I know. Which away. does have more. So at-home insemination is intracervical insemination. So gravity potentially plays a part. Would help. Um, yeah. IUI, intrauterine insemination, job's done. You know, it's in there right, in the right space. Yeah. Um, yeah. So ended up doing, I remember the first time, um, yes, it was <laughs> it was quite stressful, I guess. Um, yeah, but... So what the way we did it was, you know, had the specimen cups and the syringes. Um, Phil would stay with me when he came over from the East Coast. Um, so he would do his bit in the spare room, walk the um, specimen jar down the hallway, hand it over. We'd say goodnight and off I went. And um, I remember the first time I had read all this stuff about preserving sperm quality. So I decided we would do it, you know, 48 hours apart each okay. time. Um, and that was the first month and it didn't work. And the second month, um, one of my friends who's a GP was like, no, you just got to bombard it. You know, you just need as much sperm in there as you can. So we did every night and he would normally come for three or four nights at a time. He was lucky he could work out of Perth. Um, and so, yeah, we did that for all subsequent attempts, (laughs) but yeah, it's, um, we did actually do document some of that for Triple J's hack um, under aliases and they did an article years ago now um, about it. So don't add sperm to your friend. Uh, But it was weird. You know, it was weird the first time. It got less weird the more times we did it. But So obviously you'd known him quite a long time thanks to your friend. Were you close before then, do you think, or was it like? Yeah, we were we were friends. Um, we're definitely much closer now. Um, yeah. having gone through like a year of trying, um, and then obviously having um, I've got my babies now, and he's a part of our lives. Um, and he is a massive extrovert, so I think that helped a lot. So, mm. um, and we talked a lot. Um. You know, and we had we had that shared history. Like I'd been on holiday with his family many times. Um, we had spent many nights, um, you know, drinking and talking rubbish in London bars. And, um, yeah, I, so we were pretty comfortable with each other and have just got more so. I can't um, imagine what it would be like to do that with someone I didn't know. <laughs> mm. But, yeah, as I said, I never, I never imagined that as a possibility for me, but it's worked out amazingly. So I feel lucky. I feel lucky that we did have the conversation and we did go down that path. Yeah, even to have someone as an option because for me there would be no one I would even think of to ask. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny you say that because I didn't think of anyone either. You know, mm. having known him since I was 18, it, he just never occurred to me. Every time I – well, I just never really did turn my mind to a known donor, to be honest, but – most of the men in my life were the partners of my friends. Mm. You know, I don't, other than that would one. Be slightly awkward to ask them. <laughs> yeah. Although I do know someone who did that. Ooh. Didn't ask, but it was offered and used. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Um, 
yeah it's it's funny to think of yeah how you'd have that conversation but <laughs> and so given you were quite close friends was he involved in any way during your pregnancy or the early days or it was just very much you've got your daughter and you've got your son and you just told him that they exist um he wasn't really involved so when I was pregnant I just you know did carried on and did all of that stuff myself um I think I think I like sent him some of the scan pictures or something um mm-hmm. you know when we did talk you know that everything was going fine a really smooth pregnancy both times um so I was lucky I also decided to go public so I didn't have any fancy scans um really <laughs> um then when I had my daughter, I think when she was about um, a month old, um, he came over for a week um, and got an Airbnb. Normally he stayed with me, but at that point, at that time, he got an Airbnb around the corner and then, you know, visited during the day to meet her and spend some time with us, which was really nice. Um, and he did the same thing after I had Freddie. Um, I guess by that stage we were a little more established in our dynamic and he stayed with my parents then after Fred was born uh, and was an amazing help. It was an amazing help, you know, um, played with Gwenny, um, helped with loads of stuff. Um, so that was really nice. But, yeah, I think so I probably – we probably speak every couple of weeks on FaceTime. Mm-hmm. Um I send him photos of the kids when I take a good one. Um and um, normally see him maybe twice a year. And does Gwynny, now that she's obviously three, she'll be a bit more conscious of what's going on. Does she understand that he's her donor? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we one of the things we had talked about was what they would call him. Mm-hmm. And before she existed, we kind of, you know, I didn't have a strong feeling about it. I said, well, what do you want? And we sort of for a while thought, you know, would it be uncle? Um, um, and in the end she and she calls him dad. So she knows okay. he's her dad um, and she calls him dad. Uh, and that's just the way it's evolved for us. So he doesn't parent her, but she knows he's her dad. And, um, you know, and she loves hanging out with him when we do see him. Yeah, I guess it's a little bit different when you are a close friend of them. Yeah. It's probably more evolved to that. Yeah. She hasn't asked me that many questions yet. Um, Sometimes she makes an observation, like um, my dad doesn't live with us, but then she has friends whose parents are separated and we have a great solo mum network as well. So she's got lots of um, friends who are in solo mum families as well. Um, and she just talks about it in a factual way, to be yeah. honest. Um, Have you got a lot of the books and things like that? To yeah, we do. Um, no, not really many of the specific ones because they don't, I haven't found a book exactly for our circumstances yet. Um, but we've got lots of books about different families and donor families. Um, and yeah, she, I'm sure there'll be more questions. Um, They're just starting to get to that age, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so when you first decided you were going to do this, it sounds like you had a lot of support from people. Um, what do you think changed for the second time and how did you overcome that with having less support from people? Um, I guess 
the less support was like less emotional support. Um, so in practical support, uh, physical support has always been there. Um, you know, it did it did hurt, and I think I probably asked for less help as a result of that because mm-hmm. I felt like I wanted to prove that I could do it on my own, that I was capable of being a mother of two children. Um, and, you know, everything changes once he's a reality, once he was here. Um, and, you know, my family's amazing. I get lots of um, help and support from them. Um, so I've kind of overcome that, I guess. And I, I mean, you just find your way really, like those first periods with a baby are very intense. Um and I guess it helped personally for me finding a bit of myself again. So after I had Gwen, um, there were a few things I prioritised for myself, like still um, being in my book club, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, something I've always loved. And, you know, when she was really little, I had family babysit for me, but after she got a bit bigger, um, I used a paid babysitter. So for me, that was really important to not have that pressure or even guilt of being asking family for that and having mm, them. That's common, that one, isn't it? Yeah. And feeling them feeling, especially my parents, like they're responsible for my having a social life. So, and I know that's a privileged position being able to pay for babysitting and that's not an option for some people. Um, but, you know, I do that. Um, once a month sometimes more um and that you know helps you know really helps me and how are you finding life with two then <laughs> um well it's phases with kids isn't it you know even with one I remember phases like some phases are harder than others um it is harder um it is harder I I've said many times if I was a bit younger I might have left a slightly bigger or or tried for a slightly bigger gap in age between them so there's two years and four months between my children mm-hmm. um I don't think I personally wouldn't have coped well with a smaller gap um you know, my daughter is like quite an intense child. She's very active, um, very adventurous, you know, the type of kid who just runs and does it. Yeah. Um, doesn't have any caution, you know. Um, I think, you know, now Fred is really active as well. Um, I can kind of see the next 12 months being quite hard. I've just gone back to work. So I was really okay. lucky being able to take Matt leave for 10, 11 months with both of them. Um, so I've just gone back to work to a new job. Two weeks in, it is hard with two. Um, I work full time as well, so right. uh, in a compressed week. So I have Wednesdays off, but do long days the other days. And and both like, the kids are at daycare while you're yeah. Away. So they do one day with my parents, three days at daycare, mm-hmm. and just logistically getting us out of the house, getting them into daycare, getting to work. Um, getting them home again, feeding them, you know, it is a lot more work with two. I think we do need to find our rhythm a bit because I feel like when I went back to work with just one child, that was pretty smooth um, for me. You know, I like what I do. I liked working. I felt like it was an okay balance. Um, I know that lots of my solo mum friends say that finances are one of the biggest factors and considerations. I feel that too. And, um 
if I had another source of income contributing, then I would probably work a bit less than I do. Yeah. I'd yeah. still work, but a bit less. Um, and it is hard, you know, it's a lot. You have to be super organized. Um, and yeah, I think we just need to find our rhythm um, with that a bit. You know, Freddie's only it 10 months. It has only so. been two weeks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, you know, babies are physically a lot of work. Um, they need you to do everything for them and, you know, that will get easier as he gets bigger. But, yeah. Are you noticing it's quite different having a boy to a girl as well? Um, They're quite different personality-wise. So he was a much calmer baby. Um, so he might, I might be in for it him, with him as a toddler, <laughs> but yeah, no, I don't know. I think just their personalities are different. I probably haven't noticed. I think the first time he showed an interest in his boy bits, I was like, oh, oh yeah, <laughs> that's, um, okay. Didn't expect that to happen quite yet, but, um, and Gwen is fascinated with the difference between them as well, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but no, not really, not really. I didn't really have a preference um I know some people have um you know experienced gender disappointment um it that wasn't something I ever felt to be honest um did you find out what you were having when you were pregnant I did I did I always thought I would be someone who didn't um turns out I didn't know myself as well as I thought I did (laughs) um I always say I think a big factor for me was the two miscarriages. Mm-hmm. So being pregnant with Gwen, having had two miscarriages, having that emotional baggage of would I will will I be able to carry a pregnancy to term? Um, when I got to the 11, 12-week point and was able to have the uh, harmony test with her, um, I did it and um, ticked the box. I was like, I just want to know. I just want to know. Um, and maybe – not knowing that about my first two pregnancies, not having that piece of information about those potential people, whether they were boys or girls. Um, yeah, I did. I did find out. <laughs> Any other anxiety or anything while you were pregnant as a result of being pregnant after miscarriages or did you find that it eased after having the harmony test? Um, I think it eased a bit. Um, it definitely, oh, you know, I remember that first that first trimester um and even like I do have a very practical mindset as well so for me until the pregnancy was viable like the you know statistics of like what you know what week is is actually possible for her to survive from um (laughs) yeah (laughs) like for me that was I was very very conscious of that and I didn't buy a single thing for her um until quite close to the end, um, until eventually my mum was like, that's, you're being, you know, this is ridiculous. You've got to buy something for that child Um, (laughs) that I quite far along um, made my first purchase (laughs) and started to set up her room and everything. Um, Yeah, you know, it's hard. It's hard when you have that added burden and, you know, it's stressful. (laughs) Was Freddie's pregnancy a bit easier then because you had been successful with Gwen or was anxiety still there a bit? Um, I, I think it probably was. Um, it probably was. I, I still remember having those, you know, during that first trimester, every time you go to the 
bathroom, like thinking, I hope there's no blood. Um, yeah. <laughs> I can see you nodding. I know you that know, feeling. Yeah. It doesn't go away. <laughs> like it doesn't go away. Even after the first trimester, it's still there a little bit. Um, but yeah, again, even 40 and then I turned 41 while I was pregnant with him. Um uh, I'm also um, overweight and so the whole time um, through both pregnancies uh, my age and weight were raised as risk factors by my medical team. Um, neither of them resulted in any, um, had any impact. I had really smooth pregnancies. You didn't get gestational diabetes? No, even though they made me do that bloody test multiple times with each like pregnancy. Old, so. <laughs> Um, no, no, it's fine. Okay. Um, I never gained weight with pregnancies either. So, um, yeah, I mean, I do see lots of people posting about that on solo mum forums. Uh, and I do think, you know, there still is a bit of, um, you know, bias about that. Mm. Uh, and there are other factors which are more indicative. Like I've always had a regular cycle, um, never had any, um, other issues and yeah I guess for me I did conceive in the scheme of people's journeys I did conceive quite smoothly. And so when you were doing all the legal stuff with Phil did you talk about the prospect of him potentially donating to another family? We did yeah we did so that was something that was important to me so I guess my my thinking was like it's not my choice, it's his choice if he decides to do that or not. But what I did speak with him about and have in the agreement was that I want to know, you know, because I'm thinking about my children and, you know, if they do um, have genetic siblings um, out there, I want them to know and have the chance of potentially having a relationship with them if they want to. Um, so we talked about that Um and he agreed he was totally fine with that. I think, I'm trying to think the last time we spoke about it, I think he's um, pretty much decided he wouldn't now. Um, Is he looking to have children of his own? No, no. So they, he and his husband um, didn't decided they didn't want to have children of their own. So looking back on your journey now, if there was anything you could do differently or any advice that you would give yourself back when you started, what do you think that would be? Mm. Um, start earlier. Yeah. <laughs> don't don't put it off, I guess. Um, I mean, I try not to think about it that way because I think, well, there's something I can't change that now. But um, I definitely wish, especially knowing that, you know, I, I always wanted to have children. It wasn't a decision I made later in life. It was always on the card to me, um, just starting earlier. Um, I think so I was in a relationship from like 27, 28 until about 32. Mm -hmm. Um, and then that ended and at 32, um, I did date again for several years and really enjoyed that, but didn't meet anyone that lasted longer than a few months and then started to, I guess, experience that mid thirties. Um, you know, where you become less attractive on the um social on the oh. internet dating. Um, well, it, I just I definitely noticed like a drop off 
yeah. um, in terms of the quality of people I was meeting and the number of interactions. And um, I guess, yeah, anecdotally felt that was probably a bit about age and the mm. way that's viewed. Um, but some of it was probably about me too. Um, and I, I wish I'd started earlier. Because I do think, especially being their sole parent, um, I do think about that, you know, the fact that when they're a bit older, you know, I'll be I'll be old. <laughs> so, you know, hope, like trying to stay fit and healthy so that, you know, I'm still in a position to be an active parent and involved in, in any potential grandchildren's lives as well. Um, yeah, and, you know, being a mum at 40 is, you know, physically hard <laughs> as well. Um, I feel like getting up and down off the floor would have been easier when I was 30. Um, maybe. Maybe, but yeah. Um, but it is what it is. But that's definitely, I would say, to anyone who's thinking about it, don't, um, you know, don't delay, do get started. Uh, I know it's probably common advice, but things take longer than you think. Um mm. You know, especially in Australia, if you are using a clinic donor, there are wait lists, um, especially in WA, can take, you know, six to 18 months to even get to the top of the list for sperm. Um, so, you know, get it going. You can always, like, say no once it comes up, but if you're having to wait for and you just don't know what physical challenges you might encounter as well conceiving. Or even yours, which technically should be one of the easiest ways even that still took months I think people yeah. don't realize it's actually quite a miracle that anybody gets pregnant like all of the yeah. things have to line up perfectly it's not yeah. 100% chance every month so that's right I know such a you know so much is about luck um yeah and I guess me I feel like I spent years treading water um you know not enjoying dating anymore but not start like actually starting the process of trying to have a baby on my own um and I should have I should have got started earlier <laughs> and how do you feel about dating and the prospect of meeting someone now um I think I'm really happy on my own I've always been um you know I don't feel that need for a relationship but I would like to meet someone uh, I feel personally I'll have a much better chance of doing that um, now that I've had my children mm-hmm. because, you know, that's what I want um, and I have them now and so there's no pressure. Um, the only pressure is really making sure that I put their needs first and, you know, whatever relationship I end up with is one that's compatible for them too. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I feel positive about it. Um, I don't feel like it's on my radar at the moment. Um, it feels like a logistic challenge when they're so little, um, but down the trap, yeah, I definitely would be open to dating. Um, yeah, I hope, I hope I do meet someone, but then, you know, I find the longer I'm single, um, the more comfortable that gets. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, people always say, like I get so many messages from like people in my mother's groups from both children saying, Oh, my partner's away. Um, it's so hard. I don't know how you do it on your own. <laughs> and I don't know, for me, I think you're missing your reality. You know, the mm-hmm. reality of someone coming home and helping with bath time or whatever. Um, that's not my reality. So I don't miss it. 
Um, And that's not the bit that I find hard. You know, yes, caring for a child um, is very repetitive because they need to be fed and clothed and cleaned every day. Um, You know, and that is hard and monotonous, uh, but that's not the bit I find hard. You know, having no time for yourself can be hard, but lots of people with partners don't have that as well. And I prefer to focus on the positives of being a solo mom. And for me, there are a lot. You know, there's no drama. There's no emotional baggage. All of my emotional energy goes to Gwenny and Fred. And that I like that. You know, Mm -hmm. I feel like they have a calm, um, great home uh, that doesn't have any drama. I think there's a lot of us that can relate to exactly what you just said there. <laughs> what do you think your favourite bits are or the bits that surprised you that you would, didn't realise you'd love as much as you do about being mm. a solo mum? Um, it's so beautiful seeing their personality come out, um, being able to have like real conversations with Gwen now. It makes me so happy and, you know, the things that come out of her mouth <laughs> just <laughs> so funny. Um I love having adventures as a family. So I am someone who likes to go out and do a lot of things. So I love taking them places, even though that's quite hard at the moment. (laughs) I try not to let that deter me, um, but taking them to the beach and the pool and things like that um, is quite hard at the moment with the ages they are on my own, but we still do it. And I love making those memories. I really love the connections that I have made with other mums. So I have had great mums groups with both of them um, and have, especially since I've had Fred, really put a lot of effort into building my village with other solo mums. Yeah. So I actually, in retrospect, I think, why did I never think to look for things like that? But like when I started researching um, about trying to have a baby of my own, I never found the Facebook groups and the forums for solo mums um, when I was trying or even when I was pregnant with Gwen. I didn't find any of those things until she was about six months old. Um, and there was actually another solo mum in my mother's group with Gwen when we went oh, around wow. and introduced ourselves. There were yeah. 12 mums in the group and sat next to me was another solo mum who'd used a clinic donor and sat across the room was um, a woman who'd used an egg donor. So yeah, that was shocked me, but was so great. Um, And and she didn't either. She hadn't found any of the groups and we sort of found them together when our babies were about six months old. So I felt, um, you know, that was quite a hard age for me with Gwen and I sort of found it hard to have more than like half sentence conversations with other solo mums. So it took a while to build up some of those relationships. And I was much more proactive about that when I was pregnant with Fred. Um, And we actually started a um, age group, solo mum group in WA. Um, And so we've got like a group of women with babies, similar age, some of whom have older kids as well. Um, So it's been great, you know, connecting with them um I've got um, a few weekends away planned this year so I love that and I moved back to Australia after 10 years in the UK when I was 36 and I felt I moved to a new city it's not where I'm from Perth okay. uh and I missed all of my friends um 
and and social life and I think I've built a new one through being a parent and that is one of my favorite things as well you know the connections that Gwen has and Fred is building as well and that I have with um, those people. Being a bit older did you find that most of your friends from school and things had older children so you didn't quite fit with that as well? Yes some um, some I guess a few of my friends have chosen not to have children um, and a few have had them maybe a few years before I did, um, so a bit later as well. Um, my twin has two children who are 10 years older than mine. Yeah. Um, but my younger sister has a little girl almost exactly the same age as my daughter. Oh, so how fun for that, growing up. Yeah, that's been brilliant um, to have that and she's in Perth as well. Uh, but I definitely benefited from that because I got given – so many things from yeah. friends whose babies were older, children were much older, um, you know, nursery furniture, prams, um, clothes, like everything. I, I hardly had to buy anything. Uh, being one of the last ones to have a baby has benefits in that way. Yeah, have all of this. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I guess too, at the time I had Gwen, I was living um, – in quite a central part of Perth um, in a fairly affluent suburb. And I really noticed with that mother's group. So we had um, ages ranging from 30 to 50 wow. in our mom's group. 50. Um, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Which, yeah, so I was kind of middle of the range. Um, I moved further out into the suburbs after I went back to work with Gwen to be closer to my family. And um, the mom's group I joined with Fred, I'm the oldest. Mm. Um, which is to be expected, I guess. Although, again, there's another donor-conceived baby in that mum's group as well, so he has, um, he has two mums. Getting more and more common, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, which is fantastic. Mm. It's so great. Nice. I think it's like that is something I would really note um, for anyone considering this or, you know, already down the path. You do have to put in effort. You really yeah. do. And like social, a social life is really important to me. I love going out and doing things, um, seeing people. I am an extrovert. I know that's important to me um, and I have put a lot of effort into it. Um, but it is, you know, it is easy to float along and not put the effort in and I think you do miss out, you know, if that stuff is important to you. Yeah, and I think especially without a partner, it's not like you've got half a social life for them and half a social life for you you've got to try and make it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think I found with mine when I was organising these daycare dinners, I felt like because everyone was like, you're the solo mum, surely you don't have time to do all these sort of things. And I was like, well, I've got nothing else once my daughter goes to sleep. Mm -hmm. But the amount of women there that are like are so grateful for being for me being the person that has organised them because they want to go, they just don't think to do it themselves. So yeah, we just be the enabler. Yeah, Well, that's right. So I was the organiser in my mum's group with Gwen as well um got the same comments like oh and and I guess a few comments about that perspective of like oh my god how can you be on top of it when you're a solo mum um and I was like well it's what you prioritize it was important to me um and you know once I got her to bed at a reasonable time of night um it was a bit of a golden period with just one child when they go to bed at 6 30 and you do have no one else to worry about then and you know you can get stuff like that done 
I think that's one of the nicest things about it. You don't have to then go and entertain someone else. And if you don't feel like doing anything, you don't have to. If you don't yeah. want to do the dishes till the next day, nobody sees it. doesn't matter. So many talk people talk about the pressure that having babies and young children has on romantic relationships. Mm. And I can see why because, you know, there's not a lot of energy to go around when you're looking after a baby. Um, yeah, so we'll just bypass that and do the relationship thing later. Yeah. What is it? You can find true love at any age, but being a mother has a time limit. So it sure does. Yeah. Wait for our Prince Charming to come and sweep us off our feet a little bit later. <laughs> yes. And closing, is there any advice or anything you'd like to say to anyone who's kind of, I guess, considering whether this is the right path for them or not? Mm. Yeah, I think um, there are lots of resources that I know about now that I wish I had known before. So I have had a few um, friends and like friends of friends contact me since I've become a solo mum, asking questions, um, asking for resources, that type of thing. So I think it's great that, you know, your podcast, lots of things that people are writing now and sharing. Um, I do think it is useful to hear others' perspectives to think about it, but Personally, I think for me, I knew what I wanted. I know that's not the same for everyone, but again, just get started. If you think that's something you want, you know, just get started. Um, don't wait, you know, don't tread water um, waiting for something that, you know, might not happen. Uh, and, it, you know, it is hard, but it's also amazing. Um, I just think it's a different hard. I think there are different hard things when you're a solo mum. You know, there are plenty of hard things when you're partnered with children as well. Um, I, I'm lucky because both my children are well and healthy. You know, I, you know it's hard if you um, have health challenges yourself or have a child with health challenges, but, you know, that's not, you can't control those things. Um just go for it would be my advice. Um, it's the best thing I've done. I can't imagine my life without them. Um, yeah, just go for it. That's a pretty awesome way to end. Thank you so much, Jess, for sharing your story. You are welcome. Thank you for making this possible. I'm Alicia and this is the No Need for Prince Charming podcast, bringing you stories of Australian solo mums who created their own happy ending. If you like what you heard, please follow or subscribe to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes and leave a like, a review or share with your friends to help others find it easier. Bye for now.